Welcome to episode 1A, the inaugural episode of the 40-Day Hero's Journey podcast, the podcast of original stories where fictional characters find themselves in life situations, and we explore how average folks can be heroes, just like in Hollywood films. Over these eight episodes, we will spend time with Alexandra Hayfield, or Alex to those who know her. We'll explore her strengths and weaknesses, hopes and fears, what makes her human, and what it takes to be a hero. In this inaugural episode, we introduce her and the world she lives in. Her story is titled, Cool, Clear Water. Her journey is the first of what I hope will be many explorations of average folks trying to do the best they can to live happily and successfully. It's early afternoon at the Melton Elementary School in Reno, Nevada. We are in the year 2035. You may assume that there should have been sweeping improvements in education, but not much has changed over the past two decades. The students have just finished lunch, and the maintenance staff is completing the task of collapsing and clearing away the lunch tables. While the last tables are pushed into a double-door storage area, the classroom teachers are nearly done herding the students back into the room for an assembly. A person in the mascot costume of a mountain lion waves and gives high fives as hundreds of children file into the room. The mascot is likely a teacher, but we can't be sure. It is either a short teacher or a tall fifth grader. The multi-purpose room we are in is designed like similar rooms in schools for kids aged pre-K through fifth grade all across the country. Ropes and poles for physical education are on the ceiling. Three of the walls have gym equipment and there is a stage for performances and presentations on the fourth. The air is filled with the hum of children as they take sitting positions across the floor. When almost everyone is settled, a teacher, Mrs. Baker, strides toward the stage where she expertly hops up the stairs and turns to the sea of children's faces. She introduces Alexandra, Alex, Hayfield, the hero of our story, and her dog Max to the student body. Alex and Max are just behind her on the stage. Mrs. Baker asks for a big mountain lion welcome to wrap up the introduction, and in what can only be a normal response, the children erupt in mountain lion growls and exuberant applause. Alex is an attractive 38-year-old woman with shoulder-length auburn-colored hair. A light sprinkle of freckles on her face adds to her natural beauty. She is wearing a stylish navy-colored three-quarter sleeve button-down top and black pants. This is the uniform of H2OQ, the water quality specialist company she works for, and the shirt displays their white embroidered logo. She has a very stylish, modern, and professional look. In her hands is a leash attached to Max, who sits patiently to her left at heel, looking up at her. 
She thanks Mrs. Baker and the students for the welcome while taking a few steps toward the students, Max following automatically, then addressing the students in a manner that shows she is an experienced educator She explains that she is a water quality specialist. Her job is to make sure the water we drink is the best it can be. Alex turns her attention to Max, who reacts with an enthusiastic nod. He never stops looking up at her face. A well-trained dog is always ready for direction. An all-knowing Alex returns her focus to the children to answer the question she is sure they are all asking. Who is the dog? She introduces the students to her BFF and co-worker, Max. He is a German, short-haired pointer. It is easy to see the pet-human resemblance between the two and why Alex chose him. His brown, or liver, coat color is almost precisely the same color as her hair. And, well, there's the speckles on Max's white body that remind us of Alex's freckles. Alex explains how his exceptional nose has allowed her to train him as a poisonous chemical sniffing dog. Dogs have been trained to sniff out chemicals for a long time. With his excellent sense of smell, he helps her find cyanide spills, which smells like bitter almonds, and sulfuric acid, which smells like rotten eggs. Cyanide and sulfuric acid are often found with other dangerous chemicals like arsenic, lead, mercury, and other heavy metals with no odor. Finding cyanide and sulfuric acid can help find the others. If these chemicals get into our water supply, it is dangerous for everyone. To connect directly to the students' daily lives, she asks where they get their drinking water. Among the answers, including the kitchen sink, the refrigerator, Walmart, and the Safeway grocery store, she hears the answer she is looking for, the Truckee River. That's right, the water that comes out of the taps in your homes comes from the river. It is cleaned up at either the Chalk Bluff or Glendale water treatment plants and sent to you. She expands on this idea by telling about her dream to have a home in a desert mountain location somewhere. But the number one priority is that it has to have a good, reliable water supply nearby. What would happen if a chemical spill contaminated a water supply? It could make people sick and result in expensive cleanup projects. You might even need to drink only bottled water for a time until the water supply is cleaned. Alex gets into the details of her job and explains that there is a system to find potentially dangerous chemical spills before they become a problem that began in 1980. That was the year Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, or CERCLA. The act was passed in response to unacceptable hazardous waste practices and management in the 1970s. Then, in 2020, a team of scientists at Northwestern University near Chicago developed a one-drop test for finding hazardous chemicals in a small water sample. They called it Rosalind. She holds up a small blue box that is the illuminator of the test kit for everyone to see. While explaining Rosalind, she demonstrates this process 
by using an eyedropper to take some water from a sample she brought with her and placing a drop in each of the eight tubes. Then, clicking the tube strip shut and giving a flick with her finger, it is ready to be put in the illuminator. The developers of Rosalind found out how bacteria naturally taste things in water they are swimming around in, with tiny molecular-level taste buds. Cell-free synthetic biology allows scientists to take those tiny molecular taste buds out and put them into a test tube. The scientists then rewire them to produce a visual signal. She turns on the illuminator and holds it up so everyone can see. She tells them the test glows to let the user quickly and easily see if there's a contaminant in the water. She points out that the second tube is glowing green. This means there is lead in the water. And no, I did not get the sample from the school water fountain, she assures students, teachers, and the principal. This test was a huge breakthrough, but it required someone to take the water sample and run the test. It took another eight years to develop a procedure that could test and monitor water quality in an ongoing and automatic process. It was then that scientists at MIT designed a test that automatically reports elevated levels of hazardous chemicals to a monitoring facility. A team of experts can then be dispatched to investigate further. In 2030, Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Proactive Evaluation and Detection Act, or CEPEDA, to take CERCLA a step further. This legislation gave the go-ahead to create a web of testing sites all across the country. Key locations were identified to protect any water source for human consumption and any water source used that connects to human consumption or interaction. Examples of this are water for irrigation, drinking water for farm animals, and swimming pools. She asks if anyone has ever heard of the last name Cepeda. It is a Spanish surname for someone who traps things. So the Cepeda water quality system is designed to trap poisonous chemicals at the instant they appear in the water supply. In the five years since Congress passed Cepeda, over four and a half million traps have been installed. There are still many more locations that we want to monitor but it will take time to get all of them done. When a trap detects dangerous chemicals, a message is sent to a monitoring station. This message is called a Detected Release Indicator Point, or DRIP. The students giggle. Alex explains the process of when a DRIP message is received. Her team of water quality specialists work for a private company that is awarded government contracts paid for out of the CERCLA Superfund. When they get the call, they go to the DRIP site and investigate the source of the contamination. We have a unique white van, the Mobile Water Quality Vehicle, affectionately called Moby. It is a big, white round-edged van that looks a little like the whale Moby Dick. It is powered entirely by solar power through its innovative solar power collection system developed in the year 2028. The team consists of four people and, of course, one dog. Mateo is the primary navigator, driver, and mechanic for Moby. 
In addition, he does most of the water quality testing in Moby's onboard chemistry lab. Finally, and this is really cool, he operates the drones used for aerial surveillance. Ting Yu is an expert with a computer program called FAST. She uses it to simulate groundwater flow, solute transport, and multi-component geochemical reactions. Seeing the confusion on the students' faces, Alex asked the question, Sounds complicated, doesn't it? It is, and that's why we need her. We use it to track how water under the ground moves. Ting Yu is responsible for all computing and data analysis. John is the team leader, and it is his job to make sure we know where to go and have everything we need. He is also the liaison, or the person in charge of communication, with the EPA, USGS, FEMA, local governments, private landowners, the public, and the media. We would be lost without him. Finally, Alex explains that she is fully qualified to assist in all aspects of the water quality analysis process. In addition, she has done the groundbreaking training of Max to assist in field investigations. And she gets to visit outstanding schools just like Melton Elementary to talk about how important cool, clear water is to every one of us. Who wants to see a demonstration of what Max can do, she calls out. There is a resounding, we do, from the students. Alex explains that she has given 10 envelopes to the teachers to distribute to 10 students. Inside is a sample that smells like cyanide. She assures everyone that it's not actually cyanide. It just smells like it. It is a piece of cloth with a few drops of almond oil. Alex instructs each of the 10 students to spread out around the room. She then sets Max to find the smell. He weaves around the room, sniffing the air. He stops a few times, only briefly, to check the scent, but is quickly moving again. Eventually, he settles in one spot, standing completely still as if his body suddenly freezes. His muzzle is straight ahead, simultaneously raising his left front paw off the ground. His tail is lifted up, and he is looking with an intense stare directly at a pig-tailed girl in a bright pink t-shirt. Everyone bursts into applause, and Alex calls him back to her. She rewards him with a good scratch under the chin and a solid vocal, Good boy! She explains that when they are out in the field tracking down a drip, it is difficult to see evidence when it is small or even underground. Her curiosity started her to think about another way to find any leaks. She knew that certain elements are often included in chemical spills that give off odors. When the contamination is significant, a person can smell it. On the other hand, the human nose isn't sensitive enough to detect it when it is small. So she decided to explore whether a dog could smell small amounts of these smelly compounds. Sure enough, they can. She found a dog breeder that provided her with Max. She's been working with Max for three years, and he is now an expert at his job. Alex's cell phone begins to vibrate in her back pocket. She knows this is the first notification that a drip has been detected. She wraps up the presentation warmly and thankfully. As she is collecting herself and Max to leave, 
a male teacher approaches her. He introduces himself as Tom, offering thanks to her for a fascinating presentation and asks if she would like to get a coffee sometime. She takes a brief moment to survey him. She gets offers like this all the time. In an instant, she notes that he is not wearing a wedding ring, and there is no tan line where one would be if he was hiding being married. Married men approach her more times than you would think. Her mind goes back to before she went to college, a time when she thought a man in her life was a must-have, and the mistakes she made that ended in a pregnancy, how that boyfriend disappeared when he found out about the baby, and ultimately, after a miscarriage, how she resolved to focus on herself and her future. She sees this experience as a spiritual awakening, thankful that she did not have a child, but also sad at the same time. Back to Tom, she carefully explains that she appreciates the invitation and he looks like a nice guy. However, she travels all over the western region of the United States. Right now she's in Nevada, but could be in California, Montana, or New Mexico next week. In fact, holding up her phone, she got a notification that she must be off. We next see Alex with her team on Moby, traveling to the drip location. She is prepping a meal of dehydrated food packages for herself, Tingyu, and Mateo. So, what do we know about Winnemucca, Nevada? She asks. From her position in the shotgun seat of the van, Tingyu Chen refers to her laptop and describes the Winnemucca area, including topographical, geological, and subterranean aquifers. The drip location is an irrigation pump on well number 136658, owned by Winnemucca Farms that draws from the Mount Diablo region Basin and Range Basin Fill Aquifer. Several other irrigation pumps nearby have not triggered a drip, but it is early. From Moby's driver's seat, Mateo Perez interjects that he made sure additional drips within a five-mile radius of the initial location were activated to send directly to them. Tingyu continues, Several mining interests have wells nearby as far as possible sources of contaminants. Perhaps there is backflow from one of those feeding into the aquifer. Alex says that gives them a place to start just as Moby's telecom system starts indicating a call is incoming. Tingyu reaches out and touches a button on Moby's dashboard to accept the incoming call. It is John. He has been driving alongside them in his own vehicle en route to Winnemucca. He states that he got another drip from a site about 100 miles to the south. He needs to head over there and get another team from downstate to cover that investigation. He will do everything he can to get back as soon as possible. In the meantime, Alex is in charge of the team. Alex hears alarm bells in her head. She knows perfectly what her job is, but taking the lead makes her uncomfortable. The idea of doing press conferences alone sends waves of terror through her entire body. She tries to put in a word to the contrary, but John has already ended the call and is on his way to exit I-80 to take I-95 south. That brings an end to this episode. I hope you find Alex a compelling person and will join us again next week to find out where she goes from here. The eternal, what's next in everyone's lives?